Welcome to The Philosopher's Nest. I'm Kyle Van Ostrom. And I'm Lewis Williams. The Philosopher's Nest is a podcast that showcases the work, insights, and experiences of graduate students in philosophy. This podcast is generously supported by the American Philosophical Association, the Faculty of Philosophy at the University of Oxford, and Lineker College, Oxford. Today, we're going to be joined by Asia Sukchachawan, a PhD student at the University of Oxford. We'll be talking about Asia's background in professional tennis and her research on existentialist theories of authenticity. If you'd like to get in touch with Asia, you can reach her via email at asia.sakchachawan at queens.ox.ac.uk or via Twitter at at Asia Lee Sack. Asia Sakchachawan, welcome to the Philosopher's Nest. Thank you for having me here. So what did you see yourself doing when you left school at 18 years old? Well, that's a um, funny question because philosophy was never something that I had in mind. So I was quite a sporty student growing up. Um, I, I always you know, find myself training every day after school and going to tennis matches every weekend. And when I was in school, I was never attracted by sort of like the mainstream classes, sort of like the science, the maths and whatnot. I was all right at them, but never sort of a grade A student. I was quite artistic, so I really enjoyed art classes. So at 18, for me, I had a choice between pursuing my tennis career full time or apply to art school and to become an, a fine artist of some sort. And which of those two paths did you take? Did you choose the life of the professional tennis player above the life of an artist? Oh, yeah. I was an all right artist. <laughs> and art was always a secondary activity to me growing up. So my life, you know, and my parents as well were surrounded or more like constructed around my tennis trainings and the matches. And so, when it came the time to choose between tennis and art, the most obvious one was tennis. Because the logic was, if I want to come back to tennis after university or after art, I wouldn't be able to. There's a time limit to, or at least that was sort of like the way people view sports back then. But if I wanted to do art or if I wanted to do pursue like a university degree, I could do that after tennis. So that was exactly what happened. And how did you find the life of a full-time tennis player? I mean, it's uh, not the traditional route into philosophy. Oh, no, it wasn't. So I love this sort of like training and striving towards excellence and all of these things. I love the routine. I love going to the gym. I love staying fit. But I was lacking this sort of... um killer instinct. I was a very nice child and rather quite not saying that the tennis players are, you know, not nice. (laughs) (laughs) But when it comes to like competitions and whatnot, I just didn't have that edge that other really good tennis players do. So I liked the traveling, but I didn't like the tournaments because as I said, I was um, not performing very well when it comes to the time to do it. But that aside, I was having a very good time outside of the court. I was reading a lot. And funny enough, I was reading way more than I did during my school years. And I was reading the things I never picked up 
you know, because of the trainings, um, the sort of in- intense trainings I had in school. I was reading lots of novels. A lot of them are modern classics. People like George Orwell, Dostoevsky, Herman Hesse. Let me try to think of a few more. Jack Kyriak was a was a good one. Yeah. Yeah, I think Lewis and I had a similar experience being inspired by by literature and in particular some of the authors you mentioned there like Dostoevsky. We had a few other people in our podcast who had that same experience of, and that sort of drove them interestingly into philosophy. But what was different about them was that the philosophical research they got into was quite distinct from the themes, the themes they encountered in the novels that they read. Whereas I feel like the research you're involved in, at least with some of those authors you mentioned, is about you know self-enlightenment and self-understanding and perhaps this idea of authenticity, right? Being true to yourself, and uh, if that's the you know colloquial way that we use the term. And I take it you do a lot of research on authenticity. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about this, this concept that is in these novels and in your research. Right. So as I mentioned, I was quite interested in the Aristotelian ethics. And then there's this very strong emphasis on the good life, the human flourishing, right? And Aristotle tells us that what the human function is, our purpose or what it is to live well, is already somewhat written in our genes. Mm -hmm. We're born with that purpose in virtue of being humans, right? So it's Almost a, it's as if he's saying the best kind of life that you can lead is already written in stone. You can't change it. And there is something comforting about that, but also something very off-putting. Right. This was my biggest beef with Aristotle. And as I mentioned, you know, these authors I was reading before I got into philosophy properly were sort of inspired by the continental philosophers, people like Nietzsche or Sartre. You know, Dostoevsky was considered to be the sort of grandfather of existentialism or the sort of like the continental side of things. So alongside reading Aristotle, I got an opportunity to read and get introduced to these ideas that I found in the books I was reading. And so the, the beef that I had with Aristotle was the exact beef that Sartre had with Aristotle as well. You know, Sartre is quite well known for the phrase, um, existence precedes essence. So he thinks that it's totally unacceptable to think that we conscious beings are born with blueprint. Surely we can define the sort of values that we have, that we want, the sort of lifestyle that we want to lead. And the sort of if I may, the virtue, the existentialist virtues, is authenticity, right? So that was how I got into to to be interested in the, the notion of authenticity and whether I can balance this of Aristotelian intuition with the existentialist one. So I'm wondering how the um, existentialist or, or Sartrean intuition of existence preceding essence relates to the idea of authenticity. Uh, I mean, after all, if we have no good life hardwired into us, right, in virtue of being human beings, then what is it that we're we're supposed to be authentic about? Is it whatever we choose uh, our identity to be that that we're to be authentic about? And if so, why can we not just change that identity over time and be authentic uh, towards some other kind of identity that we've created? So Sartre 
is quite well known for proposing that we should strive towards authenticity. But frustratingly, he doesn't really tell us explicitly what authenticity is. What he did tell us, though, is what authenticity is not. So he has this notion of bad faith, which is not exactly self-deception, but it is something along the line of um, not taking responsibility for the way that you lead your life, coming up with excuses about the way that you behave. For instance, if I say, oh, I'm just not really smart because, you know, I, uh, I was raised a certain way or I am of a certain gender. Oh, this is just the way I am. I'm just a bit, you know, thick in the head. And so if I were to use this excuse to sort of explain my behavior, then he, that is bad faith, right? And it is inauthentic. You're not being true to yourself. I can expand on the notion of being true to yourself as well. <laughs> yeah, I, I suppose I'm wondering what this self is supposed to be towards which we're being authentic. So Sartre is a phenomenologist. And just to quickly give a spiel what phenomenology is, I know it's a big question, but the way of understanding the world phenomenologically is to start off with basic consciousness. To look at the world, not or to understand human beings, not from the outside in, but from the inside out. If we think about, for instance, Plato's notion of the platonic forms, right? And he considered that the forms to be the real thing, the reality of this world, and the sort of experiences that we have in this world, in the mortal realm, are just mere illusions, right? So phenomenology is the flip side of that. We take experiences that we feel the sort of the pain, perception, you know, how we experience the world to be fundamentally real. And then we go off from there. So yeah, so Sartre is a phenomenologist. He tries to understand the human reality from the inside out. So if you ask what is the self, he would say first and foremost, the self is conscious, right? What am I? Well, funny enough, when I ask that question, I can't really see the I phenomenologically. It is not transparent to me, right? But what I see are these things outside of me, right? And this is what he calls the uh, pre-reflective consciousness, right? And then you only encounter the I or, quote-unquote, the self when we try to reflect. So he thinks that the self or what I am, what human reality is, is ambiguous. So there's quite a technical term that he uses or, or more like Bovar uses and like can be attributed to Sartre. <laughs> Yeah. So human reality is both transcendent and factual or what it is to be a human being is to be to be a transcendent thing is just to be a being for itself. And this term is closely associated with the notion of freedom, the notion of um, consciousness and free will. And at the same time, we are also facticity. So 
sort of like being embodied, being in the world, um, occupying a certain temporal and spatial location, and being an object in the world. So yeah, for, for Sartre, the self is ambiguous, right? So if so now that we know that the self is ambiguous, the next question is what it is to be true to oneself. So first of all, the reason that you're not, if you're in bad faith, the reason that you're not being responsible for yourself is most often because you're not acknowledging the truth of your transcendence. You're not acknowledging that you are quite a free thing to define the sort of values that you can pursue. So this is very much the, the idea that you don't have a blueprint. So if, according to Sartre, this process of self-discovery begins from the inside, from introspection, and following on from that, if what it means to be authentic is to act in accordance with, with your true self, which you discover through introspection, does this make the project of authenticity or, or the pursuit of authenticity quite a solitary endeavour? Is it something that we do ourselves in isolation from others? Yeah, that's a great question. To sort of clarify sort of your first point. So I wouldn't say that Sartre would think you discover a true self. What you discover is this sort of nothingness, right? So nothingness has no attributes. It has no properties. It is something that he describes as a possibility, right? We got to put an asterisk on this notion of the true self. Now, onto your second question about whether this mission to live authentically is a solitary endeavor. A lot of um, Sartrean commentators would say that Sartre has quite a um, pessimistic view about social relations. So some commentators have said that um, bad faith is a social disease, right? Maybe someone, you might be able to find these kind of people in your life where they tell you that, oh, you're not going to be able to get into a graduate school, (laughs) right? Because you just this or you just that, right? And the moment that you listen to that and come to believe that, you will find yourself in bad faith, right? Something that's stopping you from applying to graduate school is this belief in yourself as being incompetent and whatnot. If it comes from sort of like these external sources, then you are in bad faith. Yeah. So that's a good thing about having a, um, an individualistic conception of authenticity, right? Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And it comes back to this, you know, trying to live authentically, right? Like trying to be true to your, to your own identity and then also trying to not succumb to the pressures of the outside, right? And like what people tell you ought to be in all these social roles that they, that, you know, they want you to fulfill. I thought it was fascinating how you said the, 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 the important thing is that you kind of like, you said transcend, right? Transcend or, or rise above, rise above those pressures. So even though it's individualistic, it's responsive, right? To like the outer world, right? Like you're, you're taking some fact about that, about the outsider social world, and then saying, 
I'm responding to that. So like, it's not so individualistic in the sense that like, it doesn't require anyone to influence you. You just have to influence yourself primarily and with the inputs from the outside. You know what I'm trying to say? Yeah, that's true. So for Sartre, the idea of passive internalization mm. of, you know, harmful social norms and whatnot is totally bogus for him. Mm. Right. And that could be a double edged sword for people like Sartre. That is a very ruthless view. Right. If imagine if you were born in quite a say a misogynistic community and you happened to you know, internalized these norms since you were young, he would say that it is your fault. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. And that is a little bit concerning. Right. Sartre has great ideas, but at the same time, we got to be critical about them too. Yeah. Like that sounds kind of brutal at times, right? So <laughs> yeah. to place the responsibility solely on you, if you somehow, you know, wind up living in bad faith. What would you say then is is your angle on this? What do you think that you know philosophers like Sartre have underappreciated or, or, or gotten wrong about this? What do you think is the authenticity 2.0? Okay, so this comes to the um, topic of my infill thesis. <laughs> <laughs> so in order to get to, as you said, authenticity 2.0, I think we have to take another look at how we understand the self. Right, you could say that Sartre has quite a individualistic and quite a atomistic view of the self. You're just this ball of nothingness that just floats around, and you just try to um, influence the world in a certain way. It could be quite empowering, but at the same time, you could say it is a somewhat liberal fantasy. What we are as human beings are quite social, and this is the something that Sartre told almost totally rejects, right? or at least in his early writings. So I think that the self, contra Sartre, shouldn't be taken as atomistic or what this philosopher Charles Taylor would say as a monological object, right? You're not just alone and just trying to influence the world in a certain way and other people are merely external, outside forces that you either allow in on or ward them off or block them out, right? So I think that the self is a dialogical object, rather. And what do I mean by this dialogical object? You know, think of a monologue and think of, and what's the difference between a monologue and a dialogue? A dialogue makes sense only if the two parties understand what's going on, right? Was a monologue, if you're alone in a room and you're having a monologue, you're just only making sense to yourself, right? Well, as a dialogue, if I want to say something that makes sense to you, I need to be able to anticipate the sort of context that you have. And then likewise, if I want to make sense of you, then you have to anticipate the sort of, you could say, form of life that I exist within. So I propose that we understand the self or self-conception, or something that Sartre would call the ego as a dialogical object. And I offer this analogy of play-acting, right? Or a, a sort of a 
a character, a dramaturgical character. When we go around in the world, we make sense of other people. Usually if the, the relationship is quite somewhat not too intimate, we go around in the world understanding other people as characters. And that's how I grasp their identity. So the character stands in for notion of identity. So for instance, you go to a cafe and you want to order a cup of cappuccino. You go in through a door, right? Not the back entrance. And that signals to the waiter and the barista that you are a customer, right? Now you walk in, you scan the room and you saw someone in an apron. Now to you, that's a barista or that's a waiter. And in these sort of um, social interactions, I would not have known that you're a waiter or a barista if I didn't have the context of what a cafe is and what a barista is or what a, you know, what we do in the cafe, right? And the same would apply to the waiter and the barista as well. So that's what I mean by what the self is dialogically. So if then we're conceiving of the self as, as you put it, dialogical, how does this relate to some of the examples you gave earlier? where others can exert influences on us that move us to perceive ourselves in bad faith. So for example, you know, you gave the, the example of that person telling us, you're never going to get into graduate school, you're never going to get into graduate school, and you internalize that and you see yourself as somebody who's not going to get into graduate school. So in those kinds of situations, it seems like the dialogical part of self-discovery or whatever we're calling that process doesn't illuminate the true self or whatever we're calling that thing. How does the... Um, dialogical part of what you call self work with those kinds of examples that you spoke about? I'm not denying our transcendence, right? I think we, we are very much conscious and we're very much, uh, to a certain extent, able to comprehend the sort of character that other people impose on us, right? So say if someone keeps telling me that, oh, you're not going to get into graduate school. Your grades are not good enough. You have too many interests outside of philosophy. This is not for you. Right. So I might think of myself and internalize those of like character and say, you know what? Yeah, I don't, I don't think I'm suited to go to graduate school, but I can create myself. Right. I can sort of imagine a possibility in which I can go to graduate school, right? Maybe I'll say, I'm just going to embrace this character, right? And I sort of imagine a narrative in front of me where, say, I will, you know what? I will start doing the readings now that the deadline's in a few months. I'll write a killer, you know, personal statement or whatever. This sort of like imaginative exercise allows me to visualize a character that I could inhabit. But still, this character is something that makes sense dialogically. You might have to go through solitary work. But imagine if um, you find yourself in an academic environment where you're instantly discriminated based on your gender or your race, then it becomes almost impossible for you to imagine the character that you could inhabit in the future, right? Because that path is already cut out for you. 
thank you so much for giving us that that breakdown of how your accounts kind of differ and this sort of dramaturgical dialogical account of the self, something that I guess people haven't thought about that much. Asia, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Philosopher's Nest. You can find our website at www.philosophersnest.com. And if you're a graduate philosophy student who might like to come on and join us for an episode, feel free to reach out to us at thephilosophersnest at gmail.com.